Welcome, friends, to another edition of A Positive Podcast, where we work to enhance our lives by exposing the tools that we already have inside of us. My podcasts are designed to be short inspirations that will take these proven methodologies of positive psychology and give you examples and deeper insights on how to practically apply them in your own life. In other of my podcasts, I've shared some tips and tools. Today, as I will do on occasion, I will interview someone who can share wisdom and life experiences that essentially do the same thing, teach you that we have the answers inside ourselves. Today's guest is not only a great person with great wisdom and much life experience, he also happens to be my father-in-law, Rabbi Gershon Schusterman of Los Angeles, California. When I speak with my father-in-law, you will hear me referring to him as Schwer, which is the Yiddish word for father-in-law, but is also a double entendre and can also mean difficult or challenging, which is ironic because nothing about my Schwer is Schwer, difficult or challenging. A short background to give you context and color to the tapestry that we will be spinning today. My father-in-law, Rabbi Gershon Schusterman, is a businessman and a mashpia, a mentor to the Los Angeles community for the last 25 plus years. Prior to this role in LA, he was a Chabad shliach, a Chabad emissary of the Lubavitcher Rebbe in Long Beach, California, where he helped establish a thriving Chabad community and Jewish day school and a blue ribbon school. In 1986, tragedy struck. His beloved wife passed away suddenly, leaving him a widow with 11 children, with the youngest being 16 months old twins. A few years later, Rabbi Schusterman married a wonderful special woman, Hannah Rachel Schusterman, my mother-in-law, a renowned lecturer in her own right, and a really special person. As a result of all these circumstances and other life experiences, Rabbi Schusterman became a noted lecturer and writer and has been featured in many Jewish publications, primarily on the topic of why do bad things happen to good people? or do bad things happen to good people? And he's currently working on his own book on this topic. So let's jump right into it. Here is my conversation with Rabbi Schusterman. Sit back, listen, and be ready to learn. So welcome, Rabbi Schusterman. Thank you for being here today. So pulling right from the introduction, I want to ask you the first question. Using those topics, why do bad things happen to good people, or do bad things happen to good people, without giving away your whole book, can you give us the essence of your thoughts and the difference of these titles? And what is the punchline answer? All right, first of all, thank you, dear daughter-in-law, Rachel. Um, it's a honor to be on your podcast. I can say it's a pleasure. Oh. Not you're not a pleasure, but because the subject is not a pleasurable subject, but it's an important subject, and we all have to deal with it at one point or another. We all have bad days, and we all have crises, and we all have tragedies. It's inevitable. Yeah. Uh, people die. We would love everybody to die at 90 in, a, in, in their sleep uh, in a good, healthy way. Uh, but it doesn't quite happen that way. So pain is a reality. But... A person's bias makes up their vocabulary. Bad things. What is the definition of bad things? Good people. What is the definition of a good person? If we can get through that, we're getting it into the discussion. We all know someone, perhaps ourselves, perhaps somebody else, who went through a life-saving uh, surgery. You cannot get through a life-saving surgery without a lot of pain. Would you call that bad or would you call that good? 
generation or two ago, that, that circumstance would have been a, a death sentence. And today, we go through pain for a few days, a few weeks, a few months, and then we are healed and almost as good as new. So that which on the surface sounds like bad uh, is suddenly seen as good. Our perspectives are very myopic. We are little people. We see things from a very short horizon. Uh, uh, if we were able to look at things more broadly, a lot of things that uh, seem bad are not bad at all. For each and every one of us, how many things that seemed terrible turned out to be a blessing, and how many things that seemed such a blessing turned out to be a disaster? Yeah, that is very true. There's a book, uh, there's a book, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, we got fired and it was the best thing that happened to us. Yeah, I went through difficult times unrelated to my wife's passing and even before, um, I was reading a book, The Secret Strength of Depression. Uh, but the thesis of the book is, when a first person finds themselves depressed, uh, obviously there's something wrong. What they have to do is ha have an overhaul, take the moving parts of their being apart, and put them together in a healthier way so now that they can start again in a new way. Uh, so not everything that's bad is bad, and not everything that's good is good, and to be continued. Uh-huh. So I guess you're agreeing with my next question. There's a section of Tanya where the Alter Rebbe, the first Lubavitch Rebbe, says it's all good. And he says that if we don't perceive it as good, it's because we lack true faith in Hashem. So is the Alter Rebbe saying that pain is necessary for human being? Is that what you're also, what you were saying before prior to this question? Is this true that pain and suffering are kind of built into the fabric of creation? If God does only good and everything that he does is good, why is there a need for suffering? Uh, Shem Tov sent someone who wanted to learn about how to deal with pain and suffering. Uh, the Balshemtov sent him to Reb Zusha, the famous Reb Zusha of Anipoli, yes. who lived in a ramshackle shack at the border of the city, and ev he didn't, everything in his life was not going well in, in a conventional sense, and this guy came to spend time with him. He, he said, sure, come in, you can be my guest. Uh, and after a few days, he said, I'm happy to host you, but tell me what you came for. He said, the Balshantov sent me to learn how to cope with suffering. And the Reb Zusha said, I'm surprised. Why did he send you to me? I have no suffering. Nothing bad is happening to me. Yeah. Uh, that's what the Alter Rebbe is talking about. It's, it's a matter of attitude, not a matter of what you're experiencing. Here again, using the surgery, the, the above-mentioned surgery, the pain is real, uh, undoubtedly. Uh, but we have to distinguish between pain and suffering. I don't yeah. know who it was who said, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. Uh, so you're saying it's, it's really about the way we react to it? way we perceive it, that is all the difference. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, if somebody uh, hurt me physically or emotionally, there's pain. And it wouldn't be wise to 
not acknowledge that your hand is hurting or your shin is hurting or your feelings are hurt. Mm -hmm. But that will recede in a short amount of time. But if you keep ruminating on it, that low life did that to me. 30 days later, you're still suffering. Uh, 30, 30, yeah, you're still suffering from that insult. That person had forgotten about it 10 minutes later, uh, but you're still holding on to it. That optional. Uh, and so our reaction is all optional, the way we react to our pain and suffering. So, so need for pain. <laughs> But we get to choose how we react to the pain and make it, is, is it going to be suffering or is it going to be taking it and turning it into good and turning it into something that we can grow from and become better people from? Right. We're, we're better when we grow from stress. Those who are couch potatoes don't really feel good. Those who get up early and do exercise, and when they finish their exercise, uh, their muscles are stressed and three hours later, they feel alive. And yeah. if they do this on a regular basis, they feel alive and healthy. Uh, they do have pain, but that pain is a blessing which helps them grow. Life, you, you grow from, from I, 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 yeah, it is pain. You grow from challenges. Let's, let's use a better word. We grow from challenges, and challenges have elements of pain. Yeah. But that's how we grow, and that's how we become mature, and that's how we become wise. If we choose to, those who don't want to engage in that remain immature and are always, uh, always sad and always suffering. Yeah. So, and those of us that have the growth mindset, those of us that are in that whole mindset of how can I grow and where can I grow, really helps us uh, navigate these challenges. Absolutely. Right. You have been called the pain doctor by many people, which is not meant as a I've negative. Been, I've been called a, pa a pain. I, that I know. I don't know. <laughs> I know you would say that, <laughs> which, is, which is not meant as a negative, but rather quite the contrary, because of all the pain that you have endured in your life, you have become a lifeline and mentor to so many people who are struggling themselves. They kind of see you as someone who not only survived the crisis, but thrived. Therefore, they consult with you. So let me ask you one of the toughest questions. And um, that is, for those of you who do not know, you've earned the honorific as pain doctor by the fact that you endured pain, as we mentioned before, your wife, Rachelea Schusterman, um, of blessed memory, who was only 36 years old, passed away very suddenly, leaving you with 11 children under the age of 15. And before we get into the psychology or the intellectual answers, let me ask you, how is it that you survived that? How is it that you're standing on your feet and able to talk today, not only surviving, but actually thriving? And how did you stay sane? How did you not crumble under the weight of this huge personal tragedy and overwhelming responsibilities that landed on your lap? I hope that my life will not be defined by pain and suffering, though I did have periods of pain and suffering. Uh, very often in Los Angeles, I help people with writing the text on the uh, Matseva, on the tombstone. And there are people before their death the last months, they go through horrific pain, and the relatives often want that to be etched in stone for posterity. Right. And I said, if a person suffered throughout their life, that's an element of that. The fact that they suffered for six months or even a year, as many as, as nature has it, uh, do you want, does that become the person they are? No, and, and that doesn't apply to me either. 
you want to talk about people who suffered? Uh, I had periods of suffering, but talk about Holocaust survivors who yes. were in the camps for years. Talk about those who endured death marches. Uh, as for me, myself, yes, I, I'm not going to minimize that I went through challenges. Uh, uh, and unexpectedly, I had my wife passed away. All the dreams uh, suddenly were shattered in one moment, and my life, at least temporarily, seemed like a nightmare. Uh, how did I endure? Well, I have to thank my children. I have to thank my children because I had 11 children, and uh, I couldn't abandon them. I didn't have the luxury of curling up in the fetal position and getting under my blanket and not coming out of my bed for a week. I didn't have that opportunity. Uh, I, I had to rise to the occasion. It was sink or swim time, and I wasn't going to let them sink, nor was I going to let myself sink. Uh, I was also in charge of a school with uh, almost 400 students, um, 80 staff members, uh, 23 school buses, and uh, that needed to be taken care of as well. So I did what I needed to do. I did pay a price for that emotionally, uh, mm -hmm. which when I had the luxury of thinking about myself, which took a few years, I realized, but it was the right thing to do under the circumstances. So you're saying that the responsibilities that you had even though they were so overwhelming and difficult, it kind of got you through that initial part. It, it got you through it so that you didn't crumble and fall apart because you couldn't. I couldn't. At the same time, I will say that I, 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 I had a perspective, a, what we would call a, a Weltanschauung, an outlook at life, uh, which really served as a foundation for moving forward. Um, I remember thinking to myself, uh, right there in the hospital, the short while after the doctor made his pronouncement, I said to myself, um, life as you know it has changed forever, uh, but I, recognized that this is, I said to myself, I remember thinking these words, this is your opportunity to put everything that you believe in and everything that you learned up until now, I was 38 years old then, to put it into action. Are you up for it? Uh, and hopefully I was. Uh, I didn't see this as a fluke. I saw this as a purposeful event coming from Hashem, though God knows neither then nor now do I know the meaning of why Hashem wanted that. Uh, but there is no doubt in my mind that this was part of a master plan. And it wasn't a master plan that my wife had to pass away. And I and our family and each of my children uh, were collateral damage. 
God does not do collateral damage. When an event happens and it splinters into an impact on others, each one is, pers is it's intended for that person, how they will deal with it. The spouse, the 15-year-old son, or the 16-year-old twins. Each one was impacted differently, and they are different today because of that event. And each one, hopefully, has grown through that challenge. Yep. And, uh, yep. Wow. So, so what would you say that, I know this is a hard question, but in the darkest of your moments, like you said, you described standing there in the hospital when you were told the news, or, or even during the most challenging times following that, what is the one thing, like if it was a thing or a thought or something that got you through that moment each time or sometimes, what would that thing, what would that one thing be? The thing would be that this is purposeful and meaningful and I have to try to figure out the meaning or try to figure out how to grow from this and not to fall into a heap and, uh, and, and be victimized by it. So that thought, that, that actual thought that you knew in your heart that everything's from Hashem and everything is good and there's a purpose here, I just need to keep working on this purpose, that thought is what got you through it. Yep, absolutely. So you're more of a, um, a, an, a mind person, somebody who's falsechel, somebody who can think and would you describe yourself as an emotional person or more of a more, you know, thought out, calm person? Well, we are all a combination of both. Uh, there are times that my mind uh, governed my, my experiences. I don't admit it very often, but there were times when I was driving to school um, I was I was the director of the school. I'm talking right. a few weeks a few weeks after my wife passed away. Uh, I was once crying to myself. I had the luxury in my car being the only person. I was crying that I couldn't drive uh, safely. I had to pull over on the side of the freeway, give myself a few minutes to cry things out, um, mm -hmm. to get my composure back, so I can go to school and be the director with a smile. Uh, so I, I, I would like to think of all of us as governed by our minds, and I do have a mind, thank God, uh, but <laughs> I wouldn't say that uh, I am a cold fish. I right. uh, do have feelings. I just feel that not everyone, a person doesn't have to, what is the expression, wear their heart on their sleeve or something like that. Some of us like to, well. um, but I hear what you're saying. No, that's, that's a very interesting point. Um, you mentioned when you were speaking before about, you know, being known as a pain doctor or saying that, you know, my pain, there's really other people there that have greater pain than me, but like, um, I'm sure you read the choice by Dr. Edith Ever Eager. You heard her speak. Um, she talks about how there's no hierarchy of pain meaning that for any person suffering, to them, their pain is very real, and it doesn't matter if it's small by comparison. So nevertheless, um, as a mentor to many, how do you find the patience and the empathy to those who come to you with their, you know, quote, first world problems, 
or even real problems that they may have. And all you might want to do is say, really, this is what you're concerned about. It could be so much worse. I know firsthand. Don't you ever just want to kind of roll your eyes and say, seriously, people? One thing I will say is that that chapter of my life, uh, that most difficult chapter of my life, um, actually made me more sensitive to the pain of others. Mm -hmm. As simple as that. Uh, when you have a cold, uh, you feel other people's pain. Uh, when you have an ingrown toenail, you, you notice all those other people limping. Uh, they've been limping all along, but you never notice them. But when you're limping because of your pain, you see them too. That is one thing that actually changed for me, and hopefully it's still with me. But, you know, if you've raised children, children cry. What do they cry about? Um, Anything and everything needs to be changed. <laughs> uh, do you lose your patience with your baby and say, what kind of problem is that? There are bigger issues in life. I'm dealing, you know what I'm dealing with? No, the babe, for the baby, that pain is, the, it consumes them. Uh, and I, I would say, I don't care if the baby is six months old. Yeah. Sometimes, I don't mean to be negative, Sometimes the baby is 60 years old. Yeah. When we're in pain, we often become immature and self-centered. And our job, if we are going to mentor them and support them, we have to, exactly as Dr. Eager says, we have to see them in their pain. And that's all we have to see. We shouldn't judge them. They're not sociologists and historians at that moment. Yeah. Simple human beings in pain, and that's our responsibility. That's a good answer. That resonates with me. So it's written in the Hayyam Yaim, and the Hayyam Yaim of specifically of the 28th of Sivan. For those of you who may not be familiar with the Hayyam Yaim, it's an anthology of Hasidic aphorisms and customs arranged according to the calendar. And the Hayyam Yaim offers a timely message and lesson for each day. And on, like I said, on the 28th day of the month of Sivan, the Rebbe who authored the Hayom Yom, um, he quotes a passage, a pasuk that originates from Mishle, and the Gemara gives two explanations for this word, one is that you should dismiss it from your mind, push it away, kind of move on, and the second interpretation is you should talk it out, get it out of your system. And the Tzemach Tzedek, another one of the Lubavitch Rebbe's, adds to the second interpretation that it should be shared with others who are others only in the bodily sense, but are completely united with you, for they emphasize with you. So meaning someone who truly cares and emphasizes with you and truly gets you. And in my mind, as a positive psychology practitioner, a big premise of positive psychology is not that we should focus on psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, where you get into the roots of the trauma and where the trauma was born, but rather we should strengthen the present and ask, where to from here? What else is true? What, is, what else is good? What is working? What's going in the right direction? And that versus traditional psychotherapy. And I'm wondering if these two interpretations of the word yasichana co coincide with this idea of positive psychology. Does this resonate with you? And if not, can you share your thoughts on this idea? I don't know that much about the relatively new field of positive psychology. Uh, so I'm not competent to comment on that, but on 
commenting on what you've said and the little that I do understand about it, uh, and knowing what I know about life and knowing what I know about how the Rebbe counseled people many times over the years, including uh, Baali Chuba, those who are returning to Judaism, who did not know how to deal with their past, uh, which was inconsistent with the way they were looking at the life they want to live here on after. The Rebbe often said, uh, put the past behind you, stay focused on the present and on the future. Um, people need help. All of us need help. We're, we're, we're social animals and we're not always on top of our game and we need help and support. Uh, often we can get it from ourselves. Sometimes we can get it from our spouse. Sometimes we need someone outside of us. Uh, physical pain, there's a whole uh, array of doctors that can help you from uh, ingrown toenails to brain tumors, chas yeah. uh, And And talking about those things, I'm not going to solve them. You've got to go to the doctor and get the medicine and get the surgery and do the therapy. Uh, and that also applies in rare cases to emotional pain that you really have to go to its source. But that is rare and not that common. Uh, more often than not, uh, you need someone wise, mature, and empathetic who can listen to you and give you examples from their experience. I know, again, uh, in, in my difficult years, uh, or the difficult year after my wife passed away, I sought out a counselor, a therapist, and I've asked friends of mine in the field, uh, I need a person, either a widow or a widower, who had children, and I need to, I need to speak to them. Uh, what I wanted to know uh, was, is what I am experiencing, which was something I had never experienced before, a, a loneliness, a confusion, uh, I can add another 10 adjectives. Yeah. Uh, it, it, am I in touch with myself? Uh, and I saw this Bertha Simos, may she rest in peace, uh, she was a practicing therapist. She was retired then, but came out of retirement for me, or I went to her, her house. And one, once every two weeks, and I spoke for an hour, I made tapes of my speaking to her. She commented, she advised, but mostly I needed feedback from her, uh, and it worked. Uh, it was the Aga Valevish. It was a burden in my heart, and I spoke it out, and I spoke it out to a person who cared and had wisdom. And the Rebbe, as you know, the Rebbe wanted in each community there should be mashpiyam, there should be mentors who mentor others. Uh, they don't have to have professional licenses, but they have to have, uh, they have to be licensed in life's wisdom, life's experience, and empathy. Those ingredients, many great things can happen, and I believe Positive psychology is that. Uh, it, it may have a structure, but underlying the structure, that is what it is. Experience, wisdom, 
and empathy. I was going to ask you another question that do you think it should play a role, therapy or coaching should play a role in the life of a Hasidic Jew or any Jew for that or any person for that matter? Um, maybe, you know, like we might think, you know, I think a generation ago would have disagreed and argued and maybe said, just, you know, tap deeper into your Judaism or learn some more Hasidus uh, to get through your challenge or, you know, get your faith to be more, get, get, you know, work on your faith. Um, so what you're kind of saying is that therapy and mashpia and having a coach and a mentor, they're very in sync with the teaching of Yiddish guided Judaism and Hasidus. All of the above. If the person can find strength in learning uh, a Maimer Hasidus, all the power to him. But just as an ingrown toenail won't be solved by learning a Maimer Hasidus, if your emotional challenges at the time uh, are not resolved by the Maimer, go to a Mashpia who can read between the lines in the Maimer and show you how you can find the strength from your soul, from your God, uh, and from your life experience. I know for myself that when I'm struggling with something, I don't want people's sympathy. You know, when people will say to me, oh, I'm so sorry that you're dealing with that. You're, you're so brave or um, so wonderful how you're dealing with it, but I'm so sorry that you have to, you know, deal with that. Now, I appreciate people's sympathy, but I don't, I, I actually, I would appreciate their empathy more, like sharing their similar pains and, and being with me in my pain. So my question for you is, having been on the receiving end of people's sympathy and empathy for the various losses that you had in your life. I know that you also lost your sister, Nahama Greisman, at a young age. Um, so having been at the receiving end of this kind of sympathy and empathy, what would you suggest to people to do or say or not to do or not to say when trying to comfort another person? Because I know a lot of people sometimes, you know, really... They'll come into a shiva house or they'll, you know, they'll almost avoid speaking with the person that's struggling because they don't know what the right thing is to say or to do. People need sympathy, especially children. Uh, you don't tell a six-year-old, okay, buck up, be strong, You're a, be a man. Uh, uh, the previous generation did do that. <laughs> my generation, I often talk with some of my friends, rarely did they, the, uh, their parents went through Europe and some of them were Holocaust survivors, some of them were just survivors of, of, of the difficulties in Europe and came to America in the late 40s, early 50s. Uh, they didn't quite understand uh, uh, the mentality of their American-born children who uh, they, they were raised with, with a little toughness and you know what we all grew up and we survived and we're, we're well adjusted um, maybe babying children too much is actually spoiling them okay but every, but again to each his own and every person is different you mentioned House of Shiva um, House of Shiva, which is the Jewish tradition, that we visit the, 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 the home of the bereaved. A house of Shiva is meant to be 
awkward. It is awkward by design, not by default. The, the practice is one does not speak to the mourner unless the mourner opens the conversation. And if the mourner is in no mood of opening the conversation, you just sit there and sit there and you say the phrase of consolation, may the Almighty console you among the other mourners of Jerusalem, and leave. The Talmud says the reward for going to a house of mourning is the silence. You are there to be empathetic. Those of you who have studied the book of Job, the quintessential sufferer, it says he had three friends who came from far to be with him. And the quote is, and they sat with him seven days and seven nights and did not say a word. That must have been pretty awkward. Yes. But what you, what, what the mourner thinks about, not so much the wisdom that is, might be said, but it is the fact that they came and they cared. I know when my wife passed away, I had two friends who flew in from different places in the United States. I have many friends. Many of them called, many of them wrote. Uh, two friends actually flew in and, and spent two, three hours with me, got back on a plane and flew back. And to, to me, to this day, uh, I, I cherish that friendship and that support. What we spoke about, I have no idea, but that they came and were there for me in that sense uh, is very meaningful. But along those lines, <laughs> um, because it's awkward and because people don't know what to say, they often say, I won't say stupid things because that would be insulting, but I will use some nicer words, uh, inanities and banalities. Say things that are pablum, they don't have meaning, or if you think about it, they're actually wrong things to say. They're trying to be supportive, uh, but they don't think it through. I, I have a quick list if you want to hear. No, me. no. <laughs> what about what about like small talk? Like that also it can be, you know, like you don't want to be talking about the weather and the, the, the chocolate cake that she brought over because that as well is making light of the big, the elephant in the room. Absolutely. The wisest thing to say is tell me what you can, what some good memories of the mm -hmm. father, sister, brother, and uh, a ch sad case in a child is diff more difficult, but to, to let the person, who, the bereaved, speak. Let right. them express what, they, what they're feeling rather than, there'll be plenty of time later, uh, to sh uh, later meaning a week later, a month later. The sad reality is that people come to a Shiva house and then they forget about the person uh, <laughs> right. for the next months. So, so what you're saying is, is to ask them to talk more about the person that was lost because that's really what's on their heart and mind. And that's what would give them peace and give them some relief from their pain is thinking and focusing on the accomplishments, the good, the memories of the person that's passed. Yeah, that will address their need, not your need to speak when you don't know what to say and you're feeling uncomfortable and, and you don't have you don't have re you don't have resources to find 
wise things to say, so you just say what comes to your mind. Right. But sitting there and sobbing and crying might not be that helpful either, right? Uh, absolutely not. Absolutely right. not. Making it your own pain and how you're, much you're, you are. You're, you're, that you're dis distracting from the pain of the, uh, of, of the person who is yeah. truly in pain. It's a, it could be sometimes you may be very close and, or it could be virtue signaling, the new word, virtue sig signaling, I care so much. Right. And so right. on. Okay, that's interesting. Pardon my cynicism. No, that's okay. <laughs> I think I'm used to that. Um, <laughs> so another question, you know, as a positive psychology practitioner, I personally find great satisfaction when I'm able to help someone. And I have great frustration when I'm unsuccessful in helping the person achieve a positive goal or outcome. And I think many people grapple with this, whether they're a mashpia or a teacher or a parent or even a friend. So my question for you is, without sharing names or identifying features, can you share um, one of your most meaningful experiences where you were able to help someone in a difficult situation and your most miserable failure, the one that kind of got away? And, and what did you learn from those experiences? I can't conjure up, I mean, I've dealt with many people and I've helped many people, but I can't conjure up one great success story. I have many small success stories, but I don't have one well, life. One small is also one great. You know, we're not measuring by size and small accomplishments are great accomplishments because they all add up into one huge accomplishment. Let me see if that'll come back to me in a minute. Okay. I do have one very sad one, which I was not very successful. I had a young woman, uh, a teenager in Long Beach, from a family that we knew, who little by little was becoming more religious. And she was a wonderful girl. She was smart. She was pretty. She was cute. And she was uh, uh, effective. She can get things done. Um, I actually hired her. She was around 18 to be a part-time secretary in my office. She went to Israel in the summer, she came, and she, in Israel she fell, she broke her coccyx, she came back, she suffered um, for a while until that healed. And then after a while, as she got better, uh, she started dropping things and dropping things. Uh, it took a while to diagnose that she was a young woman with multiple sclerosis. I remember she was very still able to function, I built a ramp to my office so she can get in um, first with her uh, crutches and wheel, uh, uh, wheel the, not a wheelchair, but what do you call that, a, a um, what you walk with? Uh, a walker. And, and then a wheelchair. But eventually her life deteriorated, got worse and worse. Um, Talk about tragedy. Her she lived. She lived at home. Her mother was her caretaker. Her mother dropped her. She broke her femur, and her mother freaked, and couldn't and refused to take care of her any longer. She said she had to. I I, I spoke to some friends uh, in the nursing home industry to support twenty-four hour nursing, and that worked for a while. Um, Beryl Weiss rose to the occasion and paid for her nursing for over a year, but then her condition deteriorated. 
she ended up going to actually going to a uh, nursing home. Nursing home was not a place. She was then like 21, 22. Her brain was in perfect shape, but her body was betraying her. And um, it reached a point that she needed a tracheotomy. And she said, I refuse to have a tracheotomy. This is not living. The family called on me. You're, you're the only one she'll listen to. And I remember meeting with her and talking to her. And she said, I didn't become religious for reward. I came religious because I wanted to be close to God. Why is he doing this to me? Uh, and whatever wisdom I might have in my mind at that time uh, was inadequate. Uh, wisely, I held it back. It was inadequate to address what she was feeling. Yes, I did convince her to have the tracheotomy and that gave her another few months in life. And sadly, I officiated at her funeral. Mm. And that left me uh, um, with her family feeling very bereft. And uh, no, I, I didn't do well. I didn't do well for her. And uh, it left a void in my life. And it gave me the understanding that there's more to life and death than I can understand. And perhaps that any of us can understand. Um, and at a certain point, we need to submit, submit to the will of God, whether we understand it or not. I mentioned that in the house of mourning, the Talmud says the reward for going to a house of mourning is silence. Uh, the common translation is the people to listen and not to blurt out uh, nonsense. One of the commentaries is the silence of the uh, bereaved that they are able to swallow the challenge that God has put on them. Uh, Aaron, when he lost his two sons at the inauguration of the tabernacle, the Torah says, described Aaron with two words, by Yitom Aharon, and Aaron was silent. Uh, it didn't mean he didn't speak. It mean he was silent and submitted. There are things in life, and especially in death, that are beyond our ability to comprehend. We spend so much time, why? What did the person die from? Yeah. What difference does it, as, as that famous line, what difference at this point does that make? Uh, we're trying to grasp for on straws to make it something understandable. Some things are not understandable. Yeah. For the so rest that, of, that's, read, that's a very read. good point. I have a question about that. Because read my book. <laughs> Can't wait. I'm very excited for your book. But um, so what advice would you have? Actually, this is a great segue, because what advice would you have for people that, you know, right now we're in a pandemic and people are really struggling and, you know, trying to make sense of all the noise that's coming out about this. And, you know, there's so many people that want to say that this medicine works and this medicine doesn't work and we need to close schools, we need to open schools. And everyone's very, very heated and opinionated about their, and they just want to have answers and they want to understand. Like when you said, what did they die from? Because people want to know, was it Corona? Was it not? Because how do I deal with that? You know, does that mean that I'm at risk? And, you know, people are really struggling. 
So my question for you is, what would your guidance be? You know, what would you tell them that maybe could help shift people's mindset and help them move forward? Because I think a lot of people, a lot of us are stuck right now. We're just in the unknown. We never lived our lives not knowing what tomorrow brings. I mean, literally, I don't know if my kids are going to school. I don't know if um, camp's on next week. It could be closed today for all I know when I pick up my kid. You know, everything's constantly, it's so fluid, it's changing. So, and people are really struggling with this. I know personally for me in the beginning of the, of the, quarant of the lockdown, it was hard. It, it was dark. It was difficult. I had to really dig deep and to come to peace because I'm a person that likes to have things, to know what tomorrow brings. I like to, really, I like to plan what's happening in February now so that I know what, you know, I'm doing in March and February. And for the first time in my life, I wasn't able to do that. And that was hard. So my question is, what guidance would you give people that could help us shift our mindset and help us move forward, even though we don't know what the next moment brings? Well, uh, you and another hundred million, if not a billion, feel exactly the same way that you do. And that itself is in some strange way a comfort. It's not me. It's not about me. Uh, and we're all in it together is more than a cliche. Reality is something big has happened and we're all in it together. And we haven't been singled out. Um, you know, <laughs> Tonight, we're going to say Echa, uh, where uh, Lamentations, we're going to be reading about the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, uh, uh, the Tupate HaMikdashim. And there's a line in Echa written by Yirmiya, uh, It's like talking to someone bereaved, what should I say to you? Who can I compare to you? Who is similar to you that I can comfort you? Knowing that others are going through that. Um, my mother had premature twins in, in, during World War II. And preemies in the middle of a war uh, is not a good thing. Uh, she had a midwife, a Russian woman who was a midwife. And as it was, one of the one of the twins uh, didn't make it through more than a few days. The other one, Baruch Hashem, survived and is alive and well today. Uh, but when my mother was fetching to her midwife, the midwife said, "I too had a similar situation. I had a healthy child, but it's middle of the winter and it was so cold. And we had a kerosene lamp." and the kerosene lamp gave off fumes, and the baby's delicate lungs couldn't take it, and in the morning, the baby was no longer alive. This was comforting. She was meaning to comfort my mother. Uh, it's, it, it is a, a, a comfort of sorts that other people go through this. Uh, so when you know that you're not singled out, that is supportive. In better times, and maybe even in bad times, uh, one way to get out of your own myopic suffering is to help others. Volunteering in a hospital is one of the best therapies. I don't know if it's safe to go into a hospital today. I don't know how that actually works today. 
but volunteering at a food kitchen, helping others and seeing people in a worse condition and that you can be supportive of them gives a person a sense that I can still do something productive even if I am suffering myself. You don't have to necessarily go to a hospital. You could. I heard Rabbi Yossi Jagerson talk about this, that during Corona he had somebody um, send him a list of people that were sick with COVID or were struggling or had family that were sick, very sick, and he asked for their numbers and he would call two or three people a day just to uplift their spirits, just to talk to them, just to bring them some form of encouragement. And he said that it picked him up more than anything else, that he was, it gave him purpose. It gave him the ability to get through this time in an easier way. So that's a very good point. Absolutely. Getting out of ourselves. Yes, also exercise. That was something that really helped me too. You know, that was one thing I did every single day of the pandemic, except Shabbos. Sometimes even I went for a walk on Shabbos but I would work out and break a sweat. And it was the time where I had nobody talking to me and I was able to think. And it really gave me the energy and the ability to go on with the rest of the day. So, well- You said that exercise, physical exercise that you just described does better if you do it consistently than any of the psychotropic drugs that are prescribed for, for depression. It's an amazing thing. It's studied I, I, and proven. It's, it's unbelievable when you think about it because people really want a quick, quick fix. And, you know, even if you get medication and you're struggling with like a real chemical imbalance, it doesn't, it takes three weeks just to even enter your bloodstream and even to have any kind of effect. And yet exercise, I don't know, for me, immediately that rush, that feeling, it's an immediate relief. And people need to really tap into that. Oh, well, okay, well, this has definitely been an interesting and informative interview. I would like to thank you, Schwer, my father-in-law, Rabbi Schusterman, for giving me so much of your time. I know it's precious. And I truly appreciate your wisdom and your input. And I'm sure that all my listeners and everyone listening will enjoy this conversation and will benefit. So I'm wishing you and all of us an easy fast and a meaningful Tisha B'Av. Thank you. The same to you.